0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online.
4: Life is
1: full of awesome what-ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.
0: As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips.
3: When we study people that are exceptional at risk taking, there's some clear functions that are, you know, take part. And one of those is that there's a phrase that guides many of them. Um, I'm, I'm sorry. There's two phrases that guide many of them. One is, um, You'll do whatever it takes when you when something matters to you. You'll do whatever it takes. And if you think about being a mother or um, or a husband or a father or you know someone that you deeply love in your family structure, and there's a car coming, you would do whatever it took to be able to save that person that you love. And so that level of conviction starts with great clarity, and that clarity is the statement that I love you to to as much as you can uh, articulate in words. And I will do in my action whatever it takes.
5: I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at UnmistakableCreative.com. Michael, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Oh,
3: uh, thank you. I'm looking forward to this conversation
5: with you. Yeah, me too. So, you know, it's funny. I was texting my business partner, Brian. And I said, you know, this is like getting to have a conversation with the performance coach from the TV show Billions, um, which is, you know, kind of what really drew me into your work was that. And then, of course, Liz Wiseman, who was a former guest, here, had mentioned your name to me. And when I got to look at what you did around peak performance psychology, I thought, yeah, this is a crazy story that we have to tell. Um, but before we get there, um, I want to start with a question that has been really a lot of fun and really interesting to see kind of where it's going and how its impacting people Um, what social group were you a part of in high school Uh, what did you learn from being part of that social group and how did that impact the choices that you ended up making with your life and your career
3: yeah. Uh, yeah. So let's start at the beginning. Um, in high school, so there was a, a little bit of a windy path to get to the group that I got to in high school. And so right before high school, it's actually something that I think will set up this story properly. And um, I moved a bunch. My folks were uh, in corporate America. And so I bounced around a little bit as my dad's roles expanded and grew. and And he was on that arc in his career. And so I found action sports. And action sports and adventure sports were, I was drawn to, because there was risk involved, there was challenge involved, and there were no traditional coaches. And so I learned much from Mother Nature, and then that working out that little dialogue in my head between hesitation and commitment. And so I found myself in high school, um, attracted to the same types of people. And I I grew up in Southern California, so surfing was the group that I spent most (laughs) of my time with.
5: Interesting. As as an avid surfer, I can appreciate that more than you possibly imagine.
3: Perfect.
5: Um so I actually I have a question about that because you know I'm one of those people who started surfing when I was in 30 and I was a band geek in high school, like the least imaginable person that would be drawn to action sports of all things because as you know, action sports basically involve no traditional coaches, a lot of getting your ass handed to you especially as a surfer. I'm curious what do you think it is that Enables that kind of switch to happen for somebody later in life.
3: Well, I think you know it's a really thoughtful question because as we get older, hopefully we're still growing, and some people they foreclose on their identity at an early age and they miss the importance of accelerated growth. Mm-hmm. And so, but however, if if you have demonstrations of what you just talked about, likely what took place is that. Um, your palate changed, your palate for uh, information, your hunger for experience in different avenues to touch different parts of your mind, your body, your soul, whatever it might be. And so uh, it's just a great demonstration of people that are wanting to grow.
5: Do you think that that palate change of sorts is something that can be deliberately engineered and brought about in your lives? And if so, how?
3: Yeah, I don't think that it's like, That deliberate. I think that, yeah, there are, you know, I'm cautious to say there's two types of people, but there are some very noticeable trends for people is that some folks are deeply engaged in wanting to grow. And you, you can be, when you're around them, you notice because they're all in. And they're hungry to learn, they're applying what they've learned, they're doing something with what they just learned, they're adding it to their scaffolding in a way that um, is not just taking information to make it work for them, but they're figuring out how it works for their psychological framework. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you can just make a decision like I want to be like that. I think, of course, all things in my mind do start with decisions that are kind of that correlate and swim together with our genetic coding but um, it's not quite as clean because it goes from decision making to action to habit you know to testing that habit in in progressively intense environments is kind of the clip that allows people to be able to stand in their own two feet and say you know this is what I've learned and not be afraid of what other people think of that journey.
5: Hmm. so i'm curious as a surfer um what are the life lessons that you have carried into other areas of your life and into the work that you do uh from your experience in the water um and of course you know i'm because so much of what i do is driven by you know the time that i spend in the water i'm just
3: curious oh yeah really oh that's cool yeah that's really cool um I, first of all like i when I hear the phrase, as a surfer, I remember in high school, never wanting to be part of that phrase. <laughs> and I, spent my whole, I spent my whole life in the water, really. Yeah. Like, it was tough to get through high school, like the academic part, because of the amount of time I spent in the water. But I remember at that age, there was two magazines, Surfing and Surfer. Mm-hmm. And I thought, no, that, 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 like, I'm not going to be identified as just being a surfer. And so when I hear you say it now, it goes back to high school, like, no, you know what? We're not defined by just that little thing that we do or that we love, but there's so much more, um, that we incorporate that, which we love into other parts of our environment. So the answer, that's like the long part of the question, but the, the shorter part is, um, the space between hesitation and commitment and working out that, that small little instant, seemingly instantaneous experience, um, that is part of the risk-taking process and that mother nature and um, progression of skill has taught me much about how the mind works and then you know through my academic career has been able to sort out all the theories that were related to it and all the bright men and women that have studied that and then my applied experiences in life have you know um, I've just been able to acid test those thoughts with some of the most exceptional performers in the world. So it's like, I think that that's it. It's working out risk and um, what it means to be able to go for it and how important our psychological framework and that little dialogue in our head. <laughs> uh, th- those are some of the things that I'm just so fortunate to learn from my community and, uh, and Mother Nature.
5: Okay, so I want to get into your academic career and, and kind of how you know it led to where you're at. It's, but what? It's boring. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, one of the the other questions I have, you know, I had a guy named Chris Redlitz here, who's a, a venture capitalist who teaches prisoners how to code and is starting a tech incubator in San Quentin. And you know, we were talking about immersive experiences. Like he had spent a year um, as a ski bum, and he credits that to being one of the most influential experiences of his life in terms of how he built businesses because he understood at a certain level what true immersion and true commitment actually felt like. And, you know, I mean, I, I'm one of those late bloomer surfers who, uh, you know, spent six hours a day for six months straight in the water because I was unemployed. And so, you know, I got this very immersive experience that you don't really get to have in adult life. And so I'm curious, one, you know, based on the work that you've done with the people that you've worked with, do you find that these kinds of immersive experiences are necessary for us to achieve peak performance and perform at the highest levels, regardless of what it is we're doing? And uh, if we don't have those immersive experiences, how can we bring the elements that we might learn from an uh, immersive experience into our lives
3: and our work? Oh uh, Yeah, good. So first, um, I'm not, I'm not really interested in peak performance. Okay. And because peak means like there's a summit, and then there's a decline. And so I see it more like a progression, a, a, and hopefully a life progression of figuring out a craft, figuring out our body and figuring out our mind. And if all three, if we can wrap all three together in progression, then that's pretty cool. So I'm not interested in peak performance as just you know, first thought. So, but not to screw up your question on that idea is like, if we replace the word peak with progression or sustainable or high performance, something on on those range without being too ivory tower about it, that, you know, I, I think that, um, what, what we end up doing is immersing, when we immerse ourselves in an environment, we learn so much because it is Part and parcel of what we're thinking about and doing most often throughout the day. So most people on the world stage are deeply and richly invested in something for an extended period of time every day, and that goes back to some classic research from um, you know early in uh, I think late in the 1980s about immersion and um, deliberate practice. And so that idea is hard to escape if you want to become and pursue, as I was going to say, become great, but it's really about pursuing your potential. You got to be saturated with um, that, which you care most about.
5: Hmm. All right. So, I, I, like I said, I want to do a deep dive into all of this stuff, but before we get there, um, mm-hmm. walk me through from being a surfer in high school to how you become the person that you are today. Like where, what in the world led you down this trajectory? Because it's, you know, nor, you know, being a performance psychologist uh, is usually not one of the options that's put in front of you when you're in school.
3: Yeah, okay, very cool. So th- thanks for teeing that up. I when I was in high school, um no one in my family went to college and you know, they're just they're more entrepreneurial and corporate America was the function. So I didn't have a model of university settings. And so in high school, I was just really soaking up the experience and I was Um, immersed as much as I possibly could in the things that I loved, and school was not one of them. So, I got to the end of school, high school, and my parents pulled me aside and they're like, you know, we tried, son. Uh, We didn't know exactly how to guide you right. We never went that path. We tried. So, you've got two options. You can get a job and get out, or, um, or you can go to community college, and then you could still live here. And there was this blank look on my face. And my mom, I remember clearly my mom in our kitchen looking at me saying, did you really think that you were just going to live here and surf the rest of your life? <laughs> and, I, and, and so I, I was embarrassed. I was kind of like, yeah, that's the, kind of the plan. It's working so far. So I wasn't ready to get a job and get out. I was, you know, I was young. I was 17 when I graduated high school. And so I knew I could surf a lot and go to school. So I went to community college. And there was two community colleges in our area. One was a, um, a, a private Um, and one was public and the private one was right on top of a great surf break. So, you know, which one I chose. (laughs) And then then what ended up happening is um, there was three professors, Dr. Cusio, Dr. Zenka and Dr. Perkins. I love saying their name out loud. Hopefully, you know, they're listening and I, you know, hey guys, how you doing? And so they were, um, the three of them together were good buds and they were a philosopher. They were, each one was a philosopher. Another one was a psychologist and another was a theologian. And I fell in love with learning and learning the invisible. And they just had a way about introducing um, the, the the I don't want to say magic, that's not right. Just a way of thinking about the things that we cannot see, but we know that are real. And no one ever asked me to read from that book, uh, from that point forward, another book. Like I, I just wanted to learn more. And so it just took fire. And, and um, I get asked probably, I don't know, six, seven, eight, ten emails a week about, um, you know, how can I get into the career? I want to do what you're doing. You know, can you give me any advice? And um, I want to work with pro athletes. And I just stopped the conversation there saying, it's not who cares about working with, you know, the best in the world. Like you got to figure out how, what lights you up. And when that takes place, you'll find the right path for you, whatever that might be. And so that, that, that's a maybe a longer way of thinking about how that happened for me.
5: Interesting. Um, so several questions come from that. Uh, you know, it, it's interesting that, you know, when you were only given two options, uh, you went with one. I'm curious why you think that we are so conditioned to choose solely from the options that are put in front of us. And when options aren't put in front of us, I mean, in your case, you thrived when options weren't put in front of you, which is really kind of an interesting uh, case study in my mind. So I, I'm just curious kind of what your thoughts are on all of that.
3: Yeah, it's, I think that had to do with like, my sophistication and my inner courage. And as a young kid, I, cu- I knew I could have gone a third option, which was um, travel the world and surf. And I could have figured that out. However, I just wasn't quite ready to make that step. And I knew that I didn't have a gap uh, or no, I should say a treasure chest between the gap of the money I had now and my ability to kind of figure out where to live. And so it just seemed like this, that the the step I took was the next natural progression. It just made sense that, oh, well, I know how to do A and B, which was school and surf. So let me continue that. And I didn't think I was going to care a minute about school. I had no interest in it. It was <laughs> it was so I could surf more and so that I could figure out the gap between tra- traveling the world and figuring out how to surf for a living. And um, it, something else took hold. So it wasn't like um, there was this third imaginary thing that I wanted. This was the next natural step.
5: It's so funny to hear you say that because the parallels between how I've ended up doing this and writing books are so similar. Like everything that I wanted to do, I told a friend, I said, you know, I have to be honest. I'm like the sole motivation behind everything that I've built was just so I could surf more. (laughs) But it led to all these other things that you would have never predicted as
3: byproducts. Oh Yeah, 100%. Yeah, hundred percent. And I think that that's a really cool way to think about. As all of us, we are co-creators in our life. And some of you might want to think that we're creators, and that's fine too. But I see it as like we're co-creators, and you know, there's lots of co inside of that. Our genetic coding, our spiritual framework, if you if you believe in that or have one, and then the people and environments that we. Operate in, and all of those in my mind are co-shaping and creating um, the design of our life. So, and I don't want to be esoteric by any means, but we're not in a vacuum. And just because we make a decision doesn't mean it's so. You know, there's lots of forms and functions around us that are supporting and challenging us towards that aim. For for example, I could say I want to be the greatest sumo wrestler in the world, but my frame is not designed that way. My genetic coding is not designed that way. So I I need to kind of play nicely and intelligently within my environment, my genetic coding, my mind, and the people that I, I spend my time with. So I, it, it's beautiful to think about setting your sights on something you want to experience. And it's really important, I think, is when you set those sights to have real clarity about what are the things that are in your control and what are the things you're going to go along for the ride with and what are the things you're going to influence um, on, that, on that path. So,
5: before we start doing a dive into performance in high-stakes situations, I want to ask you one other question uh, about the academic period. You mentioned that these three professors uh, were, you know, involved in philosophy, psychology, and theology. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious how each one of those three disciplines has made its way into your work today.
3: And what uh, you've taken it, from those, I love it. They're all intertwined. So, the psychology piece was obviously um, for me. I, I gravitated more towards that, and I'll tell another story about that in a minute if you want but mm-hmm. the theology part is more um, a placeholder for the spiritual side of life like what are we doing here is there a spiritual question or is there a spiritual quest or not and then the philosophy is like asking those really difficult questions about the larger nature of the world and so the mind is right is more um, singular focus like how do I train or become aware of my mind's activity now and that's very different to me than cognitive functioning so cognitive functioning is kind of like that the closer knit between the brain and the mind and then the mind is more about um you know the thoughts that are guiding our decisions or us becoming more aware of our thoughts and then the brain is more of that neural kind of three pounds of silly putty in our brain and so um let me stitch it together. The mind is more narrow focused. Philosophy, for me, is more broadly focused about the human condition. And then theology um, is just that connection between, like, that spiritual or soulful piece of being a human. And I love I love all three, and I am not sure clearly how to separate them. Um, I know the disciplines do a good job of it, but you know that idea that mind and body, as Descartes said long ago, is um, are are separate. They're just not. <laughs> you know, it's like there's no chance that um, that we're going to be able to accept that thought nowadays. So they're all intertwined, and um, those are the things I think about most. Mm. Well, I think this is a
5: perfect transition to start getting really deep into your actual work. Uh, you know, where I want to start with this is is when an athlete comes to you. Why is it that they're specifically coming to you? What are they hoping to accomplish, and what do you do with them that you know really we could extract that Sort of a, a layer that is applicable to anybody's life.
3: Yeah, most of them are um, already exceptional at what they do and what they're looking to do is they know they have more inside they want to explore that potential they want to go further they want to sustain it they want to understand how to make that experience of them being completely on point and fluid and in the pocket they want to be able to know the mechanics to experience that more often and so that's it it's it's I would say, I don't want to say never, but rarely is it somebody that comes knocking on the door that says, hey, I'm really screwed up. You know, these <laughs> these are people that are exceptional at what they do and they are nuanced and sophisticated and they're hungry. Mm-hmm. And so I, this idea to help people like in an airport or um, I've just stopped having those conversations on the airport because uh, most of the conversations, Oh, so you do motivational speaking. And I, I just want to kind of throw up on my hands like that's, it's it's so far from um, what I've come to learn from some of the best in the world is that they don't need motivation. They're exceptional at what they do and they're hungry uh, to go the distance of what they've been able to experience glimpses of in the past. All right. So
5: that raises several questions as you might imagine. Um, One of the questions that keeps coming up in my mind is why we see this tremendous gap between what people are capable of, like what their potential is and where they're actually at and what accounts for that gap in people. And what have you seen as the difference between those types of people and the ones that you work with?
3: I wish I wish that um, this thought could be more pervasive for more people (laughs) is that there is so much more to go. Yeah. And what we're capable of is so rich. And um, I just wish that thought could be more pervasive because I think that it is a thought that gets in the way, which is I'm not sure what I want to do. And I'm not sure if I did make up my mind that I could do it. And what ends up happening for um, those that are exceptional is that somehow they've chipped in. And it might be before they could actually make an informed decision because their parents and their environment were supporting them to go for it. But they really did chip in and there's a lot on the line. And so um, I think your question was also about like, how can we, um, what are some of the ways that people that do go for it, um, how they're different? Was that part of the question? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, there's definitely, when we study people that are exceptional at risk taking, there's some clear functions that are. You know, take part, and one of those is that there's a phrase that guides many of them. Um, I'm, I'm sorry, there's two phrases that guide many of them. One is um, you'll do whatever it takes when you when something matters to you. You'll do whatever it takes, and if you think about being a mother or um, or husband or father or. or you know, someone that you deeply love in your family structure, and there's a car coming, you would do whatever it took to be able to save that person that you love. And so that level of conviction starts with great clarity. And that clarity is the statement that I love you to to, as much as you can uh, articulate in words, and I will do in my action whatever it takes. So that doesn't mean that, that, that essence of the love of what I'm just describing now that I've aligned with clarity my thoughts of what's important and to do that with the action that happens at home every day in you know millions of homes across the world. And it also happens in business, those that care deeply about um, the, the businesses that they're part of. And it also happens in entrepreneurship and it happens in craft development. You'll do whatever it takes. And that Clarity to conviction is a really important process to go for. So that's one. Um, and the second that I see as a, as a defining characteristic is that there's, there's incredible pain for those that have the clarity but lack the conviction when they get tested. And so imagine – at home, if you love that person so much, and they consume so much of your heart or your body with love, and then you freeze when they are being um, uh, embarrassed or or they're in physical harm's way, and there's so much pain for those that are um, that we're talking about that become exceptional, that that pain is the impetus to to do the training. And so here's a, another story that I'll, I'll share with you to kind of harden that up just a little bit is that I was fortunate enough to work with people in it, at the highest level of action and adventure sports. And that was with um, at some time I spent with Red Bull North America to be able to um, work with that high performance program as well as uh, the athletes that Red Bull sponsors. And so what they've taught me is that it's much more painful to have an idea And to not go for that idea because of fear than it is to go for it and get bruised, scraped, or even, you know, uh, kill themselves in the process, which is hard to say out loud because that's a real possibility for people that are on the edge, whether it's financial or otherwise. And so this is a longer way of saying Um, mastering the risk-taking process. And the second is putting in the work because the pain of not being able to go for it is so great that you do whatever it takes to be able to master that process so that you're not stuck being passive or small in the moments of test.
1: Ready to pop the question?
5: I have a question just based on personal experience. I'm curious based on your work and, and kind of the things you've done, um, what role are, are mental health and mental wellness, um, you know, dealing with things like anxiety, depression, like what role does all of that play in all of this? And, you know, in some cases I found that often, um, you know, you look at entrepreneurial success and, you know, mental anxiety and craziness almost go hand in hand.
3: Well, yes and no. I mean, there's an old saying in, um, high performance, like physical training or like on the world stage with people that are exceptional in the physical training domain is that they say that performance, uh, mental health stops, or I'm sorry, not mental, uh, physical health stops where true performance begins. And so I, I don't think that I agree with that. I haven't seen any research or evidence that would suggest otherwise, meaning that those that are exceptional are mentally unhealthy sure (laughs) so i i I haven't seen that in research so everything that i will talk about or i'm fascinated by goes through two filters and and neither of them are bullshit filter the first is really um you know science and then the second is does this stuff play right with people that are already on on the world stage and exceptional and so here's what i would say is that for those to stay the distance and to do difficult things and boring things for an extended period of time because they have a love to figure out their potential and they've tasted the pain of not being able to meet the demands of a test, whatever that test is, spiritually, physically, craft-wise, mentally, whatever it is, is that there is maybe a little bit more anxiousness, but I wouldn't say it's clinically diagnosed as they have a general anxiety disorder or they have OCD, but there is just a little bit of anxiety There is a little bit of OCD or call it perfectionism, but that becomes at some point, both of those become traps towards like this undulation to sustaining their potential because OCD and needing things to be just right, to be okay internally is an exhaustive experience. And in that exhaustive experience, if we're constantly trying to control and manage our world in ways that don't make any sense and people with OCD say it, it doesn't make any sense to me. Mm-hmm. It's so it's so noisy that it ends up being um, a cost to investing on the things that we can potentially control 100% of the time. And so that's a long a lot of what I'm saying right now is that those that are on the path of mastery and those that are truly invest, um, investing their life efforts to understand the nuances of craft is that they're really clear that mastery is about controlling what's in their control exceptionally well and doing it in varied environments. So I don't I don't think that mental health and um, Sustaining excellence on the world stage are um, at opposite ends. Sure, I think
5: sure. Yeah. And I don't yeah. think I meant that by saying that. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It might have came up, come out that way, but I, I totally get what you're saying.
3: Yeah. And I think that, like, if we think about, you know, more severe mental illness, that there's, I don't know, like narcissism, and, and there's certainly narcissistic people in every walk of life. And, but it makes sense that some narcissism would be part of people that like the spotlight on them. You know, and where most of us would have uh, some sort of anxiousness about what others might think early in our career or early in that idea that people are watching what we're doing, but the narcissists don't have that struggle at all. Yeah. And so, there's different costs to the narcissist um, in professional sports or professional arenas. There's different. There's just a different cost. It doesn't mean that there's more or less, but it might make sense that we would see some of those traits um, at a lower level across more. Mm-hmm. People. Yeah. Why
5: do you think that some people um, experience post traumatic growth and others experience post traumatic stress? And have you seen that um, in the in the people that you work mm-hmm. with? Like, and what what have been
3: the patterns there? Yeah. So, I mean, first, I, I'm sure that you and your listeners have talked a lot about that because that's a really cool question. And so. There, I asked it. <laughs> yeah, we, we don't know. The answer in the field and through science is we don't exactly know. There is um, a rich investigation around uh, neurotransmitters and genetic predisposition for uh, both of those functions. And what we do know, though, is that much of what will influence people to go down something that's heavy and um, and either they've witnessed something that is life-altering um, or they've experienced something that's life-altering, for them to move down the path of growth is that um, we, we want to get more connected to the way that they're framing up that experience. And um, a lot of times the way we frame an experience is based on the reality of our genetic coding. So neuropeptide Y is a neuropeptide that um, we see people that do exceptional in special um In war times when they have high neuropeptide Y, but they take greater risks and they end up dying a bit earlier than those that don't. So it's not a simple answer and it's complicated. We don't know completely, but we do have um, some sense that when you just pose the, um, the option, hey, you know, some people go through heavy experiences and it becomes a, a PTSD and some people go through heavy experiences and they end up becoming stronger through it. And then there's a dialogue that would ensue from that to help people shape up, um, you know, how to see it as a growth opportunity. So how do we do that? One is know that that's an option. Two is build the um, the stuff of resiliency and hardiness and then, you know, be aware of that inner dialogue and our response to unconscious or non-conscious stress so that we can catch that train of thought or that, um, that stress response earlier on the train track than later. Because when we're flooded with neurochemicals and we're flooded with the experience internally, and uh, meaning our body and our thoughts… And it feels overwhelming. It's really hard to adjust and be fluid. But if we can catch it through training our awareness of our body and or our mind earlier on that train, if you will, then it's easier to course correct and adjust. So, you know, those are at least four different ways that we think about uh, the difference between the two.
5: So, I have a question on resilience. Um, mainly, you know, I, I dedicated an entire chapter in my book called, titled Fittingly The Impact Zone uh, to resilience because this is a question that I've asked a handful of people. I keep wondering whether the resilience that you gain from what I define as impact zone moments can only be, you know, uh, gained by going through those experiences. Like, it just seems to me in so many cases that you can't get that without having experienced the thing that you have to go through to get it. Does that make any sense? Say, say it to me again. So, <clears throat> okay. So basically let's use the impact zone as a metaphor, um, which you're familiar with. And for anybody who doesn't surf, I've mentioned this before. The impact zone is when you're basically in the wrong place at the wrong time, getting hit by wave after wave after wave on the head. And it seems like it's never going to end and you're never going to get back up to the lineup where you actually catch waves and surf. And in our lives, that's when just horrible shit keeps happening to us over and over, over again. And, you know, I, I keep, you know, one of the things I said is the only thing in my mind that can prepare you for that is the experience of going through it so that the next time you're there, you know how to handle it.
3: Mm-hmm. Sure. So, okay. Got, yeah. Gotcha. I'm curious what your perspective is on all of this. Well, yeah, you can Resiliency is that thing that, you know, is so admirable when we watch it. It looks like somebody just has the ability to deal with difficult things. And they looked poised maybe during the times that, some of us would say, God, how do they do that? And it's because you can't develop resiliency and or poise without going through difficult things. And that's the first. And so if you want to do th- challenging things in life, which I'm sh- I don't know, I think most people say, yeah, I want to get after it. Like, I really want to have an amazing life. And there's an, a challenge embedded in that. To have that be a reality, it means that we need to. we're going to do difficult things. And if we want to have a wonderful life, and we're saying that inside of that, there's going to be challenges. Then, as soon as we're in the challenges, we can love it. Like, that's what we've set out to do. So, that's the first part is like getting ahead of it. And the second part is that when you're in the, the soup of it and it's difficult and it's challenging and there's a struggle, mentally or physically, there's too much tension to be fluid, then, you know, do we do everything we can to kind of survive at that moment? And that's Sometimes that's okay because that's it's good information that we don't have the physical, technical or mental skills to be able to deal with whatever impact zone that we're talking about. All that being said is that once we go through um, things that are difficult and we want to stay and build resiliency, you know, the, the, the research around the three C's is pretty clear is that. Um, we need challenging situations. We need to be able to commit to having um, a kick-ass mindset when we're in it, and then being able to have a sense of control in our lives that we actually do dictate our own experience. And those three, three, three C's um, have been um, some research that has been I don't know um, I think wonderful. And you can anyone that wants to look that up, it's Kobasa, nineteen seventy nine um, would be the the origins of that research. Hmm.
5: All right. So since we're talking about high stakes situations, um, I can't help but ask you about the Golden State Warriors (laughs) Uh, and kind of, you know, what we've seen from Steph Curry and the fact that, you know, they come back from this crazy sort of, you know, being down uh, in the semifinals and also just killing it in the finals. So I'm curious, what is it? That accounts for people's ability to perform at the highest levels in high-stakes situations. Um, given the work that you've done, and, and you know, through the lens of what we're seeing with the Warriors at the moment.
3: Well, let's go in reverse order. Okay. What are the what are the capabilities? And the first is um, being fully present. And because if we if we're not fully present and we haven't trained our mind to do so, then we find ourselves. Um, Having one eye on the ball, so to speak, and one eye worrying about what's coming next or one eye worrying on what happened last, uh, last play or last moment. So it's having both eyes into the um, experience wherever one's feet are. And so the, literally it's a mental skill to be where your feet are. And that is, in the present moment, is where excellence happens, and, you know, so that that's the number one skill to work on. And what ends up happening is that if we think of this, this trajectory of performance, um, no, I'm sorry, not trajectory, hierarchy of performance, is that we've got choking at the bottom, we've got micro choking, which is just a little bit better, then we've got performing, and then above that we've got... Um, Uh, performing under pressure and then above that we have thriving under pressure and then above that we have dissolving pressure and so it is possible to dissolve pressure and if we can work from that framework um, then you know the stakes of the environment fade away and let's also be reminded that um, whatever whatever we're watching on tv when there's an organized sport involved it the stakes are not the stakes of war And the stakes of extreme poverty, you know, so it's, it's a game and no one's dying, right? Some people might lose a lot of money or reputation if the NBA doesn't go, an NBA game doesn't go quite right. But there's, when I think of stakes, I think of life is on the line as the ultimate stakes. Mm -hmm. And, um, So I think there's a wonderful space that we can create for all of us, you know, you and I included in this is that, you know, public speaking tends to be so, so freaking hard for people. It's because they perceive the stakes to be so high. But what is at risk there is what another person might be thinking of you. And if you can undo that by being able to have a framework that says, listen, I have something I want to say, and I'm honored that I have people that will have attended to be able to care. And so then if you can come from like a sense of value, like I I have something I really want to share with you and I'm grateful for you to be here, the whole thing changes because it's impossible to have two thoughts at the same time, two emotions at the same time. That's not how our body works. If we only get one thought at a time and one emotion at a time, we dictate that. You know, and that's the beauty of having awareness of your thoughts and having the mental skill to be able to control thoughts. And... So, you can go back to surfing and, you know, for you you and I is that, but everybody has their surfing. Everybody has those moments where they're like, holy shit, like I'm I'm about to get tested here. I'm above my pay grade. I'm not sure what to do here. This is scary. I'm not well-equipped. And that type of experience is so rewarding to build capacity. And it's so uncomfortable, though that so many of us move away from those experiences because of that uncomfortable and that risk experience. So um, it's a long way of saying, embrace those things that are challenging, learn on how your natural responses from a mental standpoint, become aware of how you'd like to um, be in the present moment, and then adjust accordingly through mental training. Hmm. What about the warriors? Yeah. Um, okay. So going back, like the stakes uh, of that is, is that, um, the NBA, the stakes, what's at stake. It's reputation. It is loss and financial. And so how have they done it? I don't know how, how how particularly they've done it, but it seems as though that they've created space to play freely. And one of the ways to create that space to play freely is to be very clear that we are at our best when we're helping others. And we're at our best when, um, we're not consumed about what could go wrong. And both of those are part of the inner game, the mental game, if you will. Yeah. Okay, so... um, Oh, you know what? Let me add just one one more thing really quickly. Is that if we're not careful, all of this can just sound like rhetoric. And so it's easy to talk about things, like be focused, be confident, be aware. However, there's there's like two, three, four layers underneath of that about how to train that, how to actually spend the time to train one's mind and that's a whole different level yeah. and without the actual and i mean it like rigorous training schedule just like we we train our craft or our body um, it becomes rhetoric and it just becomes this cliche kind of conversation that we have and so i just want to make sure that we honor that those that demonstrate exceptional and cont- uh, continuous growth in their craft they're doing something to train their mind. And it's likely not by chance. It's likely that they've studied it. They've been around people that have shown them how to do it. And um, nowadays, it's really fun because those teachers are tend to be leveraging great science. And that's the science of you know psychology, which is just a wonderful, exploding, exciting um, science and application of science. Time right now, so it's a it's a great time to really learn those two, three, four levels underneath of the doing, and not just the rhetoric of talking about it.
5: Well, you know what question that's going to raise from people is what can be done uh, in their own lives, maybe day to day, to start training uh, this aspect of their minds.
3: Well, the first part is awareness, like to. to you know the, the beginning and the end is really going to come to the function of how how aware we are of ourselves, our thoughts, our emotions, our body, and the unfolding world around us. And that really, um, not to not to play um, to say a word in a trite way, but that really begins with mindfulness and a mindfulness practice to be able to become more aware of those things, so that we can develop uh, greater insight and awareness and the. The, the two of those together are how we train. So what does that look like? Clear the stage, clear the, the theater in one's mind so that we can see what wants to naturally populate the theater. And I don't know a better way to do that than writing and or observing one's thoughts. And so it's one of those two ways that seem to, to really be a well-tested, both from a scientific and um, an ancient uh, appreciation for how to become more aware of one's thoughts.
5: Hmm. So I want to ask you two questions that uh, my business partner, Brian, said he wanted to know about since uh, he knew I was talking to you. Uh, The first is how do you balance your training and intuition without getting stuck in either when you're in a high stakes situation?
3: Well, when you're in a high stakes situation, that's not the training. That's not the time for training. The training is before it. And so when you're in a moment of test or you're in a moment where you know, there is something that is of consequence and in surfing, you know, this, we talk about waves of consequence and that's not to be said lightly. And (laughs) you know, a wave of consequence mean, means just that, that something could go so horribly wrong that it could be one of your last. And most waves in surfing are not nowhere near a wave of consequence, you know? So just out of respect for what some, some of these men and women are doing nowadays. So the training comes before um, the test and Again, that, test, that training is mindfulness, it's awareness of self-talk, it is breathing work, it is writing um, um, to, to get more clear about the thoughts that you'd want to have. And then the second is when you're in a moment, whatever moment we're talking about, consequence or not, is that it is a complete availability between intuition and um, skill. And so when you blend skill with intuition, you got something really special and if you've got the inst- intuition or the instincts or whatever word we talk about to respond accordingly to a moment, but you don't have the skill either to do it once or 100 times if, if you're in an environment that is perpetual, then you come short. And so, you come up short. So, it when, you're, when we are completely clear in our mind, we are available for information that seems intuitive or automatic, but somehow that intuition… It's been programmed. It's been programmed by watching or observing or doing um, the craft that we're talking about, being able to execute, whether that's conversation and picking up micro expressions. Or body language, or that's surfing, or that's entrepreneurship in creating ideas based on previous frames that you've heard others talk about, or you've been part of, so that you can um, adjust accordingly. So your partner's right on the money is to be able to listen to your intuition and have the, the skill to back it up. is um, is the whole It's the whole inner game. And how do you pay attention to more intuition? That's awareness.
5: Hmm. All right. So one other question from him, and uh, then we'll start wrapping things up. Um, One of the things he asked is how do you regain your composure without making it obvious that you're feeling thrown off uh, in a situation like this?
3: What does that mean? That's a cool question. I'm not sure what that means. How do you regain
5: I, So I guess, you know, the thing is, there are certain moments in our lives, uh, you know, it could be, for example, let's say you're standing on stage and you go blank, which has been known to happen to people. Even Simon Sinek, who's like one of the best keynote speakers in the world, said in a, a course that he's lost his train of thought in the middle of a talk before. Um, so maybe that's one of them. So I guess l- let's use that as okay, an example, sure. since that kind of is, is a way of saying, okay, my composure has been thrown off in what is a semi-high-stakes situation.
3: Yeah, I think that... That, um, that there's no one one response to that and I haven't seen any research on it so I won't speak from a research frame and maybe there is and I'd love to read it if some of your listens are keyed up on that but I think my experience when I hear people talk about it and I use myself as an of one is that um, just keep going and there's an old saying you know in 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 dance um, and theater acting is that the show must go on so just keep going <laughs> like right? That, that just seems to be an old adage that it makes clear sense. And then the second is sometimes it's eloquent to say, hey, everyone, I've lost my train of thought. And um, can you help me remind me? Like, <laughs> I mean, be a human, yeah. right? We're not made to be perfect. We're made to be fluid and, and have eloquence and adjust. So I can't say that there's one way, but I do know that like, you know, the full panic and the sheer panic of not being perfect is tends to be more damaging to people's ability to go for it than the actual experience of not, you know, knowing what to think or do just in the right way. So, um, you know, it's, and again, like if you have a keynote address and if that's what we're talking about in this case with, with Simon, You know, most keynotes are like 15 minutes to 45 to 90 minutes, somewhere in that range. There's time, you know, and like, it's a living, breathing experience in exchange between two people. There are experiences though, when they're, it's finite, it's yes, it's no, it's binary. And if you make a mistake, it's over. And, um, you want to train your ass off before those types of experiences so that, um, the hesitation and blank slate, if you will, is, um, or the, the, no, I shouldn't say blank slate, the, um the likelihood of blanking out would be really low. Mm-hmm. All right. So
5: one last question before the, the last question. So two more questions. Um, this has been really an interesting, uh, you know, piece, the question that has led to a lot of interesting insights. What's one uh, piece of art, book, music, or movie that has uh, profoundly influenced your life that you'd recommend to our audience?
3: Well, so I grew up um, in the '80s, and I, you know, one of the ones that was just really wonderful for me was Star Wars. And I remember at a really young age, I was like seven or eight years old, and watching that, going, "Oh my God, there's there's good and evil, <laughs> it's like at play, <laughs> and um, just kind of the tension between, um, you know, doing right and the the the, e, the the power that can come from doing wrong, and you know, th- that has just been a fun little thing that's been in the back of my mind for a long time. But if we look at m- Kind of more modern um, uh, times. Um, I think that um, "Man's Search for Meaning" by Viktor Frankl was a game changer, and certainly the first half of that book is something that um, I would recommend that most people uh, read. And so, it would I would start there, and then I would start with. Um, if you want to go a little further than that, I would say that um, who shapes the culture and thoughts more than world religions. So, certainly picking up the Quran, picking up um, Tao Te Ching, picking up the Bible, picking up, and these are not easy reads, but I think in our lives, we should read read each one of those books at least once, you know, understanding the eight path fold from the Buddhist perspective. um, There's incredible, incredibly robust and sturdy practices that world religions have helped to generate. And so, there's something important there. And then I would also recommend that um, a distilled any distilled book on um, mindset training from a really well respected authors. Uh, there'd be something there that we want to pay attention to as well.
5: Hmm. All right. So one last question before we wrap things up, uh, which is how we close all our interviews with the unmistakable
3: creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I think it's being authentic and expressing honestly who a person is so it's understanding deeply who a person is and then having the courage and the skill and the conviction to have that alignment between thoughts words and actions in any and every environment and so it's a true expression of oneself and if we can do that artistically i think that that is really cool and um but to 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 be really succinct it's the alignment between thoughts words and actions and doing that in any and every environment
5: Awesome. Well, this has just been, uh, epic, like so many cool insights. Uh, this is, you know, one of those conversations I know I'm going to probably have to play back a hundred times, just <laughs> packed it with so
3: much value. And, uh, I, Listen, I really I thought we were going to talk more about surfing. I, I, <laughs> I, seriously, I didn't know we we're going to get into the heavy stuff, but, yeah. um, always fun to talk about the heavy stuff. I appreciate, you know, the time, um, to, to have this conversation and, you know, um, I'd love to talk to you more about what you're doing, like what you, what you've created as a platform is beautiful. So, um, I, I enjoy it as well.